Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. You know, what we honor today, Jesus himself encapsulates both in his life and in his words. In John 15, Jesus says something that I think we all heartily agree with. He says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down their life for one's friends. And we relate to that, right? We understand that to be true because we understand that there's no greater love than for someone to sacrifice their life for us because that's who our heroes are in life. Even if they didn't sacrifice their life, if you grew up with great parents, one of the things that makes you know that your parents loved you so much is the degree to which they sacrificed for you. For you who are parents, you know this as well. You know if a train is bearing down on you and your child and there's a choice of one of you getting out alive, that if you have a say, it's going to be your child. See, we relate to this. We understand that. What we honor and reflect on this weekend is that all-in kind of commitment in life. Uh, Before we go further, I want to give credit to a guy named Michael Ramsden whose treatment of this topic and the scripture we're using today was inspired by some stuff I've heard from him. You'll hear me reference him a couple times. So uh, you maybe have heard me tell this story many years ago. Harold was was a, a really kind man, a leader in my church growing up. He was a scout in World War II, and interestingly enough, he was one of the first Americans into Paris on its liberation from the Nazis, and he was one of the few Americans who were actually fired on by Germans in the liberation of Paris. At one particular sunny May morning, I was running late to school, walking by Harold's house, and I saw him, found him standing next to his sidewalk, openly weeping. I stopped, and after a moment, I asked him, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he struggled to say anything for a moment. And finally, he struggled to get enough words out and to point for me to get the idea of what was wrong. What was wrong was his American flag had been vandalized. It had been ripped from its cord. It had been desecrated. Over the next minute or so, Harold fumbled out words of, of anguish, of how, how he had fought for this flag and all it stood for how friends of his had been wounded and had died for this flag and all it stood for. And through the grief and the dismay of words sputtering out of his mouth through tears, he said things like, do they know the sacrifice? Do they know the commitment? Do they know the love of so many that has been given so that even those who would do this could have the freedom and the prosperity of a, and live in a country that is more prosperous than any other country in the world. See, Harold, to me, epitomized what we often refer to as the greatest generation. Now, I realize today that there are arguments out there that maybe it wasn't the greatest generation. I, I recognize historically the faults, the social injustices, the discrimination that was yet present in that time in history. There has been in recent years a lot of focus on the glass half empty. But this Memorial Day, I want to encourage us to focus on the glass half full. 
because Harold and so many other like him of that generation were truly motivated by something bigger than themselves. No matter how corrupt or imperfect that ideal yet was at that time, they were motivated by an ideal and a commitment to an ideal that was bigger than themselves, an ideal that motivated purpose and meaning and sacrifice in them. And what I want to spend time reflecting on today is what in your life, what in my life is worthy of your love and of your absolute commitment and sacrifice to achieve. See, I think discovering that answer to that question is the core question of all of our lives. When we have faced what we ultimately look at as this ultimate purpose question in our lives, something that we are so in love with that we are willing to sacrifice all for, I think sometimes, though, we get caught up in thinking we need to have some sort of intense emotional experience. We need to have this great emotion, this great adrenaline, this great passion that is constantly there. And yet I'm convinced that so often the intensity, or I think a better way to say it, the depth of experience that we need to experience when it comes to meaning and purpose of loving something or someone so much that we are willing to sacrifice all, I think it's different than we expect. I think of this in the context of marriage. When I first met Wendy... I fell passionately in love with her. I I knew I wanted to marry her. I bought the ring before she even told me she loved me. Over the next few months while I was waiting to figure out when I could actually ask her to marry me, and and then I did in a couple of months later, which uh, she'll tell you flat out was much faster than she wished I would have. Uh, Over the next couple of years, the feelings were intense. And, and I couldn't imagine loving her, anyone, more deeply than I did then. As a young man in love, I would often hear older couples say, I love my wife more now after 30 years than I did then. And I, and I would think, well, man, you must have started awfully lukewarm because that's not me. I'm already at the pinnacle of love. My only question is I don't want to let it slide downhill from here, Right? However, these past few months reminded me in a way that I didn't fully anticipate how much deeper and profound my love for Wendy is uh, than even back then. Even though, according to doctors, I, have, uh, I had twice the testosterone back then. Apparently in your 50s it goes way down and I have a whole lot less testosterone nowadays. As most of you know, Wendy has been going through this old breast cancer surgery and, and hormone treatment journey. She's an excellent prognosis, so there's no real worries there. But I'm normally a person who, when something like that comes up, I, I see challenges like that. And I, and I frankly, I, I don't know what it is about me. I don't feel a whole lot. I just know that we're going to go through it. We're going to get through it. And that's that. But i got to admit, in the midst of caring for her as she went through the pain of surgery and recovery these last few months, I was blindsided by something I didn't anticipate. I I found myself for six weeks solid, pretty much 24 hours a day, just being on the edge of tears. Anything at the drop of a hat could make me cry. And I rarely cry. I rarely tear up. I did not anticipate the pain that my love for her would elicit as I saw her go through the difficulty she was experiencing. And I, and I know that so many people have been through so much more difficult than she's been. That, that's not the point. For me, the experience put me in touch again with the fact that even though the feelings and the intensity of passion, maybe that my love, maybe the outward intensity isn't quite the same as it was when my testosterone was twice as high in my 20s, but what I realized more fully 
is how meaningful and deeply felt our depth of committed love to one another is. How our love has grown from what I would describe as a bubbling, fast, raging mountain stream to this big, powerfully moving Mississippi River kind of love. A love that has grown because of our shared history of commitment, of uh, the way she loves me at difficult times, the way I've loved her at difficult times. All those forks and those snags and those floods in the river of life. A love that is so much more powerful today than when we fell in love. Here's what I'm really getting at in that. It reminded me in all of that reflection that right at the heart of what you and I are looking for in life, the very thing that fuels passion and desire and purpose, the very thing that fuels the depth of love, that kind of love that is willing to sacrifice for another, at the very center of that is all-in commitment. See, when we wrestle with this question of purpose and meaning in life, what we are really looking for is something to which we can unconditionally commit. There's a guy named Paul Kalanithi. Uh, he, he was a Yale graduate, a neurosurgeon at Stanford, uh, and he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer at the age of 36. As a newly married man, a new dad, and a young rising star in his field, he used his last days to write a book titled When Breath Becomes Air, in which he wrestles with the true meaning of life, especially when climbing the ladder of life is interrupted and all you have is the present. In his book, Kalanithi at one point recounts the debate that erupted among his fellow medical students at Yale University. He writes, the students at Yale argued that the words insisting that we doctors place our patients' interest ahead of our own be removed. And he says, at one level, that's entirely reasonable. I mean, that's how 99% of people select their jobs, pay, work environment, and hours. But that's the point, he says. Putting lifestyle first is how you find a job, not a calling. And what Kalanithi and these students were wrestling with is, should we put a higher value on our own freedom of choice to do what is best and easiest for me, or on the love of our patients on others as a way of finding and discovering a meaningful life? And his profound conclusion is, if we put a higher value on our choices and our pleasure, the result will be that we'll find a job, not a calling, when what we're really longing for in life is to find a calling and not just a job. See, calling as life is not just something you do. It's something that you love so much that you are willing to give your life for it. A calling is something that, in essence, takes a lot of the choices off the table because our calling drives what we will and what we will not consider even as choices. See, for all of us, our greatest desire in life is to have a sense of calling that our lives will count for something and not be wasted. And as Michael Ramson often says, our greatest fear in life, he says, shouldn't be the fear of failure. It should be the fear of ultimately succeeding in something that ultimately doesn't matter. See, what, what ultimately matters in your life? That which you can love and be anchored to so wholly that it motivates you to love sacrificially. 
You know, I find in conversation and just getting to know a lot of people over the years, the last 10, 15 years, I I run into more 20-somethings and more 35-year-olds, and increasingly I run into 55-year-olds and people who are retired who just are drifting through life. They're contributing here and there, but not really committed to anything with any kind of enduring passion. This idea of a lack of commitment, I think, is a huge issue in in corporate America today and in the church as well. This past week, I was listening to Michael Ramson, who had the opportunity at one point to separately sit down with one of the British generals and, and, and a retired deputy chief of the L.A. Police Department. Both men had actually headed up officer selection and leadership training. And Ramson ended up asking both of them one question. He said, he said this, how do you train leadership in the absence of commitment? And they both said that is the number one problem we're facing these past few decades. They both said that this culture likes to live with options and choices. So most people come in not with a commitment to the vision and the values and the purpose of the organization, but they come in simply as people who are just making another choice, trying on another option, one of many choices. And when things get tough, when leadership is difficult, which it inevitably is, most of us tend to leave and we just go to something else, leaving a void of leadership. And while they are there, this general said in particular, he said, their obvious lack of commitment makes it difficult for those following them to truly trust them and commit to following them. They both resoundingly said it is impossible to train leaders people really want to follow without sacrificial commitment to the vision and the purpose of what they're doing. It's not just in the areas of love. It's not just in the areas of work that we wrestle with these issues of commitment. It affects every single area of meaningful engagement in our culture, including leadership itself. We increasingly live in a world where the primary leading value is commitment to oneself, is to our own freedom of choice. We even argue that in a lot of social issues. So the remainder of our time today, I just want to take a quick look at a fascinating passage in which Jesus uses several metaphors to speak brilliantly to this topic that we're wrestling with today. It's found in John 10. Let's read, we're going to read the first 19 verses and then we're going to go back and just kind of unpack it. Jesus has just restored the sight of a blind guy and the religious leaders have questions. So Jesus says to them, he says, very, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. So Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again. He said, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. 
The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and, and it scatters. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and, and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus goes on and says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. It goes on and says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep and I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice and they, there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. And this command I received from the Father. So Jesus has some shifting metaphors in here. And what he's doing is actually unpacking a carefully structured argument. Jesus asserts that my sheep know my voice. They know me. I'm not a stranger. I am someone they know. You, you recognize, we know this, you recognize someone's voice by spending time with them, right? So if you've spent enough time with someone, when you get a call, even if the caller ID doesn't tell you who it is, you know immediately who it is when you hear their voice. And we actually have all these people that we know their voices so well that we, and we love them so much that we, we hear their voices and, and, it, and it makes us feel good because we know how much they love us and are committed to us. We recognize people's voice. Jesus says the sheep know my voice. Now, we may struggle with this some in our Western world because our ways of sheep farming have changed. And, but in the Middle Eastern even, world, even to this day, sheep are typically trained to hear their master's voice. There's actually a story told just after World War II. So the British uh, were in Israel, and there was a British colonel who was stationed just outside of Jerusalem. And rioting and fi fighting erupted among the various clans. So what the British army did was they went into the city and they gathered all, all the sheep and they brought them to their compound. The reason they did that was they couldn't fully control the people rioting, but they knew that if all the sheep were killed out of revenge of, from the rioting, that the people would not have a livelihood to return to. So uh, when things calmed down, they wanted to have them protected to come back. The problem was the sheep and the goats had no brands back then, no markings, no tags on them. So they were faced with a dilemma. How do you figure out which sheep belong to whom? So the day after the rioting stopped, a 12-year-old boy comes to the colonel in charge, and he says, I, I want my sheep. My, I want my six sheep back. The colonel kind of chuckles, and he says, you see these 6,000 sheep? How in the world am I supposed to find your six in that? So the answer is no, we need more time to figure out how we're going to do this thing. And the boy persisted. He said, no, I want my sheep. I've come a long way. I need them. And the colonel, thinking he'd put an end to the argument, was, uh, said, well, how in the world are you going to figure out which ones are yours? And the boy looked at him like he was stupid. And he said, well, just open the gate. So the colonel decided, intrigued by what would happen, he opened the gate. And the boy called out, and six sheep came running out of the 6,000 and followed him as he walked down the street because they've been trained to listen to their master's voice, the one who cared for them, who provided for them, who fed them. See, Jesus is saying, I'm calling to you, and people will come to realize that I am the one voice that you can know and trust. Because the reality is we're all looking for someone who's totally committed to us, who is therefore trustworthy enough for us to be totally committed to them. And that's who Jesus is. He comes into this world which is so often bereft of leadership that we can trust because we don't know whether they're really in it for themselves or for us. And Jesus says, I am the one who is totally committed to you. 
And the sheep are going to follow the one they know they can trust. The guys Jesus is talking to still don't get it, so he, he changes the metaphor and uses another one. And he says, I am the gate. I understand that the Middle East gets very hot in the summer, and so all the, all the grazing land in the plains typically die. Uh, so you have to walk your sheep into the mountains where it's cooler and where there's still some stuff to be fed on and there's more moisture. The problem is if you trek your sheep uphill every day, five to six hours, and then you trek them back down, your sheep are going to lose weight and they're not going to thrive and do well. So you actually have to take them up there and you stay in the mountains up there. So therefore, the shepherds would tend to build these large enclosures with sharp, jagged rocks on the top of the walls to keep predators out, and they would just leave one narrow opening in the wall. When night would fall, the shepherd would get all of his sheep into one of these pre-built enclosures where there was only one place of vulnerability, this narrow opening. And the good shepherd slept in that opening in the wall, literally putting himself in the most vulnerable place and position where predators could attack and, and they could only get through to the sheep if they went through him. The bad shepherd, on the other hand, they'd go in the middle of the pen where it was warmer, softer, more comfortable. The good shepherd literally becomes the physical door for the sheep. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I am the gate. He's using an illustration everyone in his day could relate to. He is the door. He is the leader, the good shepherd, who is willing to face the greatest risk, the greatest pain, the greatest discomfort, the greatest suffering, and therefore people can trust that he's committed to them and they'll follow him. He says, I'm the gate. I'm the door to life itself. If you want to know what life really is like, you come through me, the door, and I will show you what life is all about. I will protect you and I will lead you. And Jesus goes on to say then, but you, you are not willing to sacrifice for your sheep. He's talking about to the religious leaders and to us. You are only interested in looking after you. And then he moves into what would be really difficult for his hearers to hear at that moment. He says, I'm the good shepherd, willing to lay down my life for the sheep, but the hired man, he just doesn't care. Another way of putting it, years ago there was a college rowing coach who gave his rowing team a pep talk. He said, you know the difference between being a contributor and being committed? He said it can be found in breakfast. If you're eating eggs and bacon for breakfast, the chicken made a contribution. The pig made a commitment. So he said this to his team. He says, so let's row like pigs. So Quest, as followers of Jesus, God is saying, let's row like pigs. After all, everyone loves bacon, right? I mean, come on, we all love bacon. But we tend to live life hedging our bets, don't we? Leaving a door open. And when life and church and faith gets too hard, demands too much, is uncomfortable, or demands too much sacrifice, we tend to exit. Why? It's because we left a door open. We like our choices. We like our options. We want meaning without too much commitment. So we tip, we don't tithe. We give a little of our time, but we don't really commit to calling to serve. So back in John 10, Jesus continues that he's actually referring back to another scripture, Ezekiel 34, which every single one of the religious leaders he was talking to would have known very well, but we may not. So let's, let's go back and summarize what's happening in Ezekiel 34 that Jesus is referring to. Ezekiel 34 says, God says through the prophet, he says, I am the good shepherd. 
And then he talks about two things. He talks about how the sheep have run away and, and why they've run away. And, and, and that's the second thing. So the reason they've run away is because the bad shepherds came and made themselves fat and rich off the sheep. But they didn't really care about the sheep all that much. So the religious leaders Jesus is talking to were supposed to be the good shepherds to the people. But in fact, they were the bad shepherds who were driving people away from God. There may be some of you here who at one time or another have experienced and become disillusioned with church and felt let down with church. And and please understand, it may very well be that God is as unhappy with that situation and even more so than you are. In Ezekiel 34, God says, hey, religious leaders, you're driving the people away. But God is the good shepherd. And so when other people have driven them away, God comes in, he says in Ezekiel 4, and is committed to finding them, gathering them, bringing them to safety, and bringing them home. In Ezekiel 34, God says of himself, he says, I am the good shepherd, and you humans are the sheep of my pasture. So when Jesus claims to be the good shepherd, who is he claiming to be? Jesus is actually claiming in John 10 to be God, and the religious leaders know that, and that's the reason why they get so furious with him. See, God is on a mission to rescue every sheep he can possibly rescue. He's going to lay down his life in order to bring us home. He is 100% committed to the mission. He is not a contributor. He is committed. He is all in. And Ezekiel moves from talking about bad shepherds then, and he starts to talk about sheep. And he says the sheep who have been scattered, what they do when they, when they go for food is they kind of headbutt each other out of the way so they can get to the food. And when those sheep who are stronger, who have gotten to the food and have their fill, they all walk and trample all the food underfoot so there's nothing left for the other sheep to eat. And further, when they go down to the water and they've had all they, they have to drink, he goes on to say they do stuff in the water, which I'll let your imagination figure out what that is, that makes nobody want to drink that water. These are bad sheep in Ezekiel 34. Not just bad shepherds, but bad sheep. They compete for food. They gorge themselves till full, putting their needs above others. They squander resources that others need on themselves. And as they do, they spoil the source of life itself, the very water that so many need. They are living, the sheep, as self-oriented consumers. Faith and church are all about their needs and their wants. So notice The good shepherd in Ezekiel doesn't rescue the people because they are good. He rescues the people because the good shepherd is good. He is so committed to the sheep that he will do everything possible to bring them back, even though they are bad. The heart of the Christian message in the faith is that God himself came into this world in the form of Jesus. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself of every privilege and right he had as God in order to live like us. He came not to lord it over us and to tell us how we failed, but to reach out and to rescue us. And there's something amazing that I think we too easily miss about being rescued. Again, Michael Ramsen tells a story about when he was a young child. They took a vacation to England. He was swimming in the ocean. He said, I was having a thrilling time. 
until all of a sudden he was caught in these currents that started jerking him all over the place and he had no control of where he was going. He says, I looked at the shore and I saw someone pointing at the red flags on the, on the beach, but he said, I, they didn't mean anything to me. So he kept swimming around. And then he says, I saw someone coming into the water and the only one I saw someone coming into the water and I saw the look on their face did I understand what kind of danger I was in. So when I got back to the beach, even though I was quite young, he says, I knew someone had just saved me. And all of a sudden, I felt terrible about what I had been doing before. What I had been enjoying was now something I knew was dangerous and didn't even want to do that ever again. See, the Christian gospel shows us that most of us have no idea how much danger we are in until we encounter the one who saves us. We're messing around with stuff that seems fast and fun and brings a thrill, but actually it is destroying us and it is about to destroy us. See, Jesus talks about that in the same chapter in John 10, saying there are forces in this world that only come to kill and destroy us, to kill the dreams, kill the meaning, and kill the love and life that we are meant to live. And that's why the Good Shepherd has to be so committed to this mission, because things are serious. To become a Christian is to fully put your faith and your trust in Jesus. You need someone to rescue your life and make something good out of the messes that you have experienced and made in your life. See, here's the amazing thing. When you have your life saved by someone, you can't help but deeply fall in love with them and deeply fall in love with that same mission to save. There's a story of Ben and Gloria. They serve as missionaries in northern Nigeria in one of the most dangerous places on earth, just a few miles from where the 276 girls were kidnapped by Boko Haram several years back. A couple decades ago, Ben left Gloria at home while he went away for a couple weeks, and when he came back there on the evening meal, there were 14 children around the table. That wasn't uncommon. They regularly fed kids all the time. But at dusk, Ben said to his wife, you know, it's time to send the kids home because it's too dangerous after dark. And Gloria looked at him and said, they are home. While you were gone, I discovered these kids had no place to go and I brought them in and adopted them, and this is their home now. Uh, ben said, we need to talk. <laughs> kind of one of those talks and conversations that married couples have when someone makes a decision that uh, they feel like the spouse should have been a little more informed about, right? We've all had those conversations if you're married. A little while later, Ben went away again for a two-week trip, and that time he came home, and, and at the dinner table, 30 children were sitting there. And he said, Gloria, what have you done? She said, Ben, we had no choice. These kids were going to die, and there was no way to protect them unless they became part of our family, so I've adopted some more. After she adopted 64 kids, Ben talked to her and said, well, we've got to stop doing this. We can't keep adopting anymore. So in lieu of that, they built a dormitory in their backyard, and now they feed over 500 kids. Ben has had three assassination attempts by Boko Haram on his life. The second time uh, they came to kill him, he was actually out of the country. He was actually supposed to be back, but his plane got canceled, and so he came back a day later. So they went into his house. They beat his wife up. They tortured her, thinking that she was lying, uh, saying her husband wasn't there, even though she was saying, well, he's not home. And after they finished raping her, they stuck a gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger. Ben arrived a few hours later to find her in a pool of blood, and somehow, miraculously, she wasn't dead. 
Took her to the hospital. She was there for three weeks in a coma, and they nursed her back to health. And Ben, who's a pastor in the Church of England, was contacted. As you know, the Queen of England is head of the church, and she contacted him and offered them asylum in the, in the, in the U.K. so he and his wife could be safe and well taken care of. So uh, one of the first things he said to her when she regained consciousness was, we can go to England and live in peace and safety. We've been offered asylum. And Gloria looked back at Ben and said, but Ben, who will love the children? They're still there, even to this day. Once you've known this kind of love, it completely changes you. It's impossible to meet the person of Jesus and be the same person. Once you've experienced the depth of love that completely given yourself to Him, your whole life changes. See, we live in this empty world desperately searching for something worth committing to. Our world is empty because we like to keep options on the table. We want to be people who make a contribution, but we hedge our bets. We never fully commit. But as Christians, we need to rediscover the depth of commitment God wants in each and every one of our lives. Because God, He held nothing back. He didn't spare even His own Son. Jesus came into the world. He didn't hold anything back. He willingly went to the cross and died for you and me to take the punishment and shame of every wrong thing that we have ever done. And then He adds to that by rising from the dead to show us He has the power to pull us out of where we've been into the new life that our hearts long to discover. So I want to leave you today with two questions. First, to every Christian in this place, where are you at in committing everything you are to Jesus in terms of your life, your money, your family, your goals, your dreams, your time, your ambition? Where might you be living life contributing and Jesus is asking you to commit? Take that step. Don't hold back any longer. And if you take that step, God is going to enrich the meaning of your life. Second, there are some here today who have not made the decision ever to follow and be fully committed to Jesus. Listen, you know what? Becoming a Christian is a really hard, serious decision because God is asking everything from you. He's asking total commitment. He's asking you to close the door on options and choices and choosing to be all in to follow Him, to let Him direct your life and to let Him define your identity and what you are about in life. But here's the amazing thing that Jesus said to us in this passage. And He says it elsewhere as well. says this, says what I'm going to quote first elsewhere. He says, if you deny yourself and you take up your cross, and you follow Jesus, if you lose your life for Jesus' sake, you will actually find what you've been looking for and longing for all along. And in our passage today, Jesus said this. He said, I have come that you might have life in all of its fullness. That's what he wants. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, I need to lead the confession here to say that I know there are areas of my life where I contribute and I'm not committed. 
And you are so patient. You are so gracious. You are so kind that you still love us even when we're that way. But Father, I pray that you would come into each one of us by the power of your Spirit right now and you'd speak to each and every one of us of the areas where we are contributors and you're asking us to be committed. And that you would help us make that step to be all in so that we can experience the fullness of life you desire for us. And that the people around us who you still want to reach can see that in us and see you in us and experience the same thing. So Lord, even as we turn to you in the song of worship that we're about to sing, would you come and would you give voice to that prayer for each and every one of us in a specific way that your joy can be in us and your joy can be complete in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.